Hello, Hillside. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Hillside. Oh, I tried to be a little still. <clears throat> Did, didn't work out too long. Well, I'm Stephen Weissong, and it is good to be with you this morning. We are continuing our series, Journey to Jerusalem. And on this journey, we're traveling along with Jesus as he moves towards completing his life mission, which was to put the love of God on display by dying on a cross for the sins of the world. But before we get to that destination, there's a journey to be had. And our tour guide for this journey is the historian Luke. And this morning, we're picking up on the journey in Luke 11, 33 to 54. So if you want to get there in your Bibles, you can. But that's where we're going to be this morning. I don't know about you, but I love going to the movies. I love the movies. And when I was in my late 20s, I had a major problem with the movie reviewing site Rotten Tomatoes. It was a righteous anger, a holy fire. Seriously, here's what my problem with Rotten Tomatoes was. The critics were way too negative about the movies that they saw. Uh, the, that they saw. And I started to notice there was a huge gap with how the critics rated movies and how the audience would rate movies on Rotten Tomatoes. So I would go see a movie, I'd look it up on Rotten Tomatoes, and Rotten Tomatoes, they would, the critics would give it a 15%, a green, gross tomato. And then you'd look over at the audience, and the audience would be at 80%. And this upset me. Uh, I really love going to see movies, and I would see these movies, and then the Rotten Tomatoes critics would call the movie trash. It really, really bugged me. So how did these critics, this is my question, how did these critics get such callous hearts? They literally go see movies for a living, and I love movies, and they didn't even seem to like them anymore. So something that I've heard is that you can find your life's purpose by whatever makes you sad, mad, or glad. And I was feeling all of those emotions towards Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and so I figured if I'm feeling three out of the three ways that you're supposed to feel to find your life purpose, I must have found something here. <laughs> so I decided that I was going to become a movie critic and write reviews for Rotten Tomatoes. Now here's the problem. I didn't have any idea where to start. But I did have an idea of what I wanted to be. I was going to look for the positive in movies instead of focus on all of the negative. So I started my journey. This is the best place that I could start. I started my journey as a movie critic by creating a Twitter account called The Positive Movie Goer. And I think we have it up here for you. Uh, so if you were looking for movie reviews on Twitter and you found the positive moviegoer, here's what you would see. I'm your best source for positive movie reviews. And I didn't rate my movies with tomatoes. I rated them with happy faces. Uh, and so when you see the happy face, you'll know the movie has been positively reviewed. This was my mission. This was my purpose. Uh, so one of the very first movies that I went to see 
was The Magnificent Seven. It was one of the first movies that I reviewed. It's a Western movie with Chris Pratt and Denzel Washington. This was my review. I said it's magnificently marvelous, action-packed, riveting. Can I be a cowboy now? Call me Billy Cinema. <laughs> and I gave it a 5.5 of Happy Faces rating. So you know you could go see that movie. And yeah, I stopped doing this, but I'm thinking about bringing these reviews back. I don't know. But when I go see movies today, I don't even read the reviews anymore. I just go to the movies and I form my own opinion and I see the things that I want to see. Being the positive moviegoer taught me how to do that. And as we journey into our passage today in Luke 11, 33 to 54, I couldn't help but picture Jesus as a moviegoer. Watching the unfolding tale of Israel's religious elites growing more and more prideful, critical, and self-important about how they position themselves in God's epic story of life. And now, on this journey to Jerusalem, Jesus is on earth. He's part of the story that God is telling, and Jesus has a few critiques he wants to make to the ones who think they have it all figured out. So the ones who think they know God the best, they know his word the best, Jesus has a few critiques for them. And the big discovery from these critiques Jesus makes is the importance of maintaining a healthy inner life so we can have a vibrant outer life that attracts people to Jesus. So we're going to start in Luke 11, verse 33. Jesus is wrapping up a teaching, and here are his closing remarks. Luke 11, 33 through 36 says this, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. And so here in this wrap-up, Jesus gives us two quick illustrations about light, and it actually is going to set up the critiques that Jesus is going to give the religious leaders in our next section this morning. So how convenient for us being here at Hillside that Jesus would start our time together talking about light, and here at Hillside we say that we are light in the world. So let's unpack what Jesus says. The first thing Jesus points out about light is that you don't hide it. You don't hide it. When you turn a lamp on at home, you don't take the lamp and then throw it in a closet. That would defeat the purpose for why you have the lamp. It just leaves you in the dark again, which is the opposite reason for lighting the lamp in the first place. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, our Lord's constant answer was to go shining on. Spurgeon said he was meant to be observed even as a lamp is intended to be seen. And so as followers of Jesus, we are meant to do the same. Jesus wants us to shine on. He doesn't want us hiding our faith because our faith is meant to be observed, just like light 
from a lamp is meant to be seen and to help us see. So listen to this. This is one of the thoughts I had this week. Your biography is your greatest theology. Your biography is your greatest theology. Our biography, the way that we're living our lives, points people to our theology about who God is and what God is like. And so if we believe God is loving, merciful, truthful, grace-giving, generous, kind, patient, well, our lives, if that's what we believe about God, then our lives will reflect that. How you live and how you love is a light shining for God in the world. It's not meant to be hidden. It's meant to shine. That's the first thing Jesus says about light. The second thing Jesus points out about light is the eye is the lamp of the body. So your eyes, we're getting scientific this morning, but your eyes are the organs that receive light into your body. And so Jesus says, when your eyes are healthy, your body is full of light. Now, this isn't talking about going out and staring up at the sun. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says that when your eyes are unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. So here's what Jesus is saying. Guard your eyes. Guard your eyes. Be careful. Be aware of what you're watching, of what you're reading, of what you're letting your eyes absorb. We live in a world that wants to trick our eyes to think that darkness is light and light is darkness. So what's the fitness plan for healthy eyes? You might be asking. I think it's simple. It's to gaze at Jesus and glance at life. So often what throws our mindsets and our attitudes and our behaviors off is we are gazing at life and glancing at Jesus. But pray for the Holy Spirit to make you self-aware for where you have your eyes looking on a daily basis. The Holy Spirit is crazy about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is your spiritual fitness trainer. So go to him constantly. When your eyes are receiving the light of Jesus, you'll discover a freedom to live in a way that looks upside down to the world, but right side up with God's kingdom. So if you want a healthy, thank you, Gary. If you want a healthy, I thought that was a pretty, pretty good remark. <laughs> Living upside down to the world, right side up with God's kingdom. Whew, I want to do that. But if you want a healthy inner life, that's filled with God's marvelous light. Don't let your eyes lose sight of Jesus. Jesus took our sins and he nailed them onto the cross so we don't have to live in darkness. It's so that we could step into the saving power of the light. Jesus wants us to be healthy and the source of our health that Jesus is really concerned about is the health of our souls. It's the inside you. And the inside you connected in a growing relationship with Jesus will impact every other area of your life. If your soul is healthy, you will be healthy. So if your souls are truly absorbing, if our souls are truly absorbing the light of Jesus, the rest of what makes us, us, will shine for Jesus 
too. The light of Jesus is just electric like that. It has a way of getting into every corner of our being and filling us with his goodness and his grace. And this is what happens when you light a lamp in a dark place. The light shines and the darkness is driven back. And Jesus says about his friends that you are the light of the world. Now that doesn't mean that we are blind to what's happening in the world. We're not blind to it. But being light in the world means that we are making it as easy as possible for people who are broken and beat up by the world to get into the light of the Savior of the world. And this is the problem Jesus has with the religious elites. You see, the religious of his day were practicing a religion that was spiritually blind, self-centered, and not shining the heart of God. And now we're going to see the showdown play out, so buckle up, because it's about to go down. (laughs) I'm serious. Here's what we read. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisee, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Here we go. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. I told you to buckle up, okay? Now, this was my dream as the positive moviegoer. I wanted to be invited to a party with all of the other critics, all the other movie critics, and I wanted to look at all of them and say, you foolish people, don't you even like seeing movies? So Jesus gets done teaching, and a Pharisee interested in Jesus' teaching invites him to a party, and Jesus does my first favorite thing in this passage today. He doesn't wash up before the meal. How many of you, you, you remember growing up, your parents would always say, wash your hands before you eat? Yep, yeah, you remember that? I remember that. You have kids now, you go, wash your hands before you eat. I was with two boys yesterday. They are gross and disgusting, and it makes sense that you would want to wash your hands up before you eat. Do you think your parents would say to Jesus, hey, wash up before you eat? Do you think, do you think they're brave enough to do that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But Jesus doesn't wash up. And the Pharisee is surprised by this. What's happening here? And I'll tell you, it's not really anything to do with hygiene. Instead, Jesus is making a statement about the religious practice of ceremonial cleaning that the Pharisees loved and wore with a badge of honor. You wash your hands, gold star. Way to to go. One commenter I read said this about how pious Jews observed the practice of hand washing. Listen to this. A really strict Jew would do this not only before the meal, but also between each course through the meal. And it was like serious hand washing, okay? It's not like boop, boop. It's like the 20 seconds that you have to do. The rabbis were deadly serious about this, saying that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. 
a rabbi who once failed to do this was considered excommunicated. You didn't wash your hands properly, buddy, you're out. Another rabbi was imprisoned by the Romans and used his ration of water for ceremonial cleansing instead of drinking, nearly dying of thirst but being regarded as a great hero. Whoa. Your biography is your greatest theology. Is hand washing before and between each course of a meal the pathway to salvation in God? Is that the biography we want about our lives? How does this practice help guide human beings that don't know God into a relationship with God? Or is it a religious practice that actually covers up the light that God wants to shine? Now, Jesus is all for hygiene. He really is. But he's not about seeing minor religious habits be turned into objects of worship or badges of honor. A rabbi was considered to be a great hero because instead of drinking his water, he washed his hands with his water. Without God at the center of our worship or rituals, any religious practice becomes unhygienic for the soul. It's like being blind and trying to see the sun. And that's exactly what has happened to the Pharisees. They are spiritually blind while believing that they are spiritually right. They look clean and healthy on the outside, and they should because they're washing their hands like surgeons. But Jesus is examining what's taking place on the inside, and it's not looking that clean or that holy. I remember I was invited over to a house to house sit one time for a family, and I, I showed up early in the morning to go take care of the dogs, and I walked into the house, and my first thought as I walked into the house was I thought, this house is really clean. The, the carpets looked freshly vacuumed. The banisters looked polished. Everything was in order. And I was going, oh my gosh, this house is amazing. And I got, I got my stuff situated. I took care of the dogs. And then I went into the kitchen to make myself breakfast. And I got the bowl out and I got the cereal. And then I went to find some spoons. And I opened up a drawer and I found the spoons, but everything was a mess inside the drawer. Spoons were with forks. Knives were with spatulas. And I was going, what is going on with this drawer? And that got me curious. I thought, I wonder if the whole house is like this. <laughs> and so they're not home. And so I'm, I'm walking around, and I'm opening every drawer, and I'm opening every closet, and inside every drawer and closet, it's a mess. And I learned that day that people are a lot like that house. We can appear outwardly clean, but inwardly we are a mess. And this is why we need Jesus. He's the only one good enough to clean us up from the inside out. Amen. Oh, yes. And that's what Jesus is pointing out at this party with this religious elite. He calls them foolish people. Now, here's something I learned. When the Bible calls someone a fool, it's not insulting their intelligence. It's not talking about their smarts or their education. This group that Jesus was with was very smart. They were the top of their industry. But when the Bible calls people fools, 
God's making a moral judgment. Psalm 14.1 says, Only fools say in their hearts there is no God. They are foolish because they are careful at maintaining the appearance of righteousness, but not the inner reality of it. And I guess you could say, that's not very smart, and that's not very healthy either. But Jesus isn't done. Actually, Jesus is just getting started. The famous movie critic Roger Ebert has a book called I Hated, Hated, Hated This Movie. And I'm not kidding. It's on Amazon. You can find it. It is a book of over 200 of Roger Ebert's best reviews for some of the worst movies he's seen. So he went to see the movie Armageddon. Here's what Ebert wrote. The movie is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained. No matter what they're charging you to get in, it's worth more to get out. (laughs) He really hated that movie. Uh, Ebert also reviewed the 1996 movie, Dear God. I've never heard of this movie, but here's what he said. I did it because it was Dear God, and we're talking about God. Okay. Parallel. But here's what he said. Dear God is the kind of movie where you walk out repeating the title, but not with a smile. (laughs) And as Jesus is looking at these religious elites... He's got some woes against them for how they've been living their life. It's like he's saying, woe, woe, woe to this religion. It's the kind of religion where you walk out repeating the motions, but not with a smile. It's the kind of religion that isn't pleasing to the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, or God's idea of human flourishing. It's burdensome. And has become a barrier for people, holding them back from God's life-changing power. And to the Pharisees, Jesus has three woes to give them. And when Jesus says woe, it's not an expression of vindictiveness. It's an expression of regret. Jesus, in the next passage that we're going to be looking at, it's like he picks up the tone and rhythm of the Old Testament prophets. He has a divine warning and a plea for inward change. The Pharisees have focused their energy on the wrong priorities. And maybe for us today, that's a word for us. So what are the three woes Jesus has for the Pharisees? The first woe is this. You give from your stuff, but you've stopped giving from your heart. Luke eleven forty two. 42. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. I got total Micah 6-8 vibes from Jesus's first woe. Micah 6-8, it's asked the question, what is required of you to do justice Love mercy and walk humbly with God. And so some of the Pharisees, we learn, they have their own herb gardens. And they've got caught up in counting out seeds and leaves to give a tenth to each God. And they've stopped counting all the ways that they could be giving themselves for the well-being of others. 
They gave down to the last seed and leaf. They were really good at practicing tithing, and Jesus doesn't tell them to stop tithing. Jesus says you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. But Jesus looks at the inside, and on the inside, they've neglected doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. The Pharisees practiced a religion that believed people will only know we follow God if they see us following a strict set of religious rules and regulations. That's what they were doing. But according to Jesus, people will know we follow God by how we love. The second woe that Jesus has for the Pharisees, you put your reputation above your character. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees thought that sitting in the right seats and being acknowledged by the right people would make them spiritual. But listen, reputation is the outward image that you want people to see. Character is the inward person. You surrender to God to be transformed. If you put your character over your reputation, you will build a reputation that brings more of heaven to earth. The third well, you are harming people instead of helping them. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing. Now for us, if you walked over an unmarked grave today, you might be like, wow, that was kind of creepy. Back in these days, touching a dead body would make you ceremonially unclean. So the Jews were very careful with how they handled dead bodies, how they marked their graves. Walking over an unmarked grave would have been considered, you've like touched a dead body. You are unclean. So Jesus says this to the Pharisees, and this would have been very upsetting. Picture like red cheeks, steam coming out of their ears. What Jesus is saying, he's calling them unmarked graves. He's saying that people are walking over them, walking through their religion without even knowing the harm that their religion is causing them. He's saying through their meticulous and rigorous religious practices, they are making people dirty instead of holy. The Pharisees are not helping people. They are harming people. It's a shot to the gut, to their religion. And then we learn that there's some experts in the law at this party too. And uh, they start feeling the sting of Jesus's words. So one of them speaks up, listen, I love this part, just saying. One of the experts in the law answered, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus replied, and you experts in the law. Now, this is great. It's my second favorite part in the passage. The expert in the law could have just kept quiet, but he had to say something. And it's like Jesus goes, all right, now you guys. (laughs) And uh, he continues his discord of woes for the experts in the law. He uses three vivid illustrations to help burdens, tombs, and keys. Listen to this, the fourth woe that Jesus has. Your religion adds burdens to people with no help in sight. 
Woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. I heard about a pastor who every day prays, Lord, help me today to not add to anybody's problems. I think I'll start praying that prayer. Because I don't want the legacy of my ministry to be a burden of pe- to people. I want people to see Jesus. I want my life to point people to Jesus. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says this, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Uh, something I learned, I can't go into all the details because we're running on time, but Something that I did learn is on the Sabbath, the experts in religious law told people, well, you can't carry things on the Sabbath in your right hand or in your left hand. People could only carry things on the back of their neck. Talk about a burden. And then what the experts in religious law would do is they would create all of these heavy burdens for people to adhere to, but because they were so good at knowing what was in the law, they would create loopholes for themselves so they didn't have to walk into what everybody else was doing. Jesus understood that people are burdened by sin. They don't need to be burdened by religion too. So you better believe that in Matthew eleven twenty eight, this invitation that Jesus gives, Jesus has the religious burdens of the day in his mind when he invites people to come to him with their heavy burdens, that he will give them rest. The fifth woe that Jesus has is you don't honor the past, you are finishing the work of it. And just listen to this, here we go. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. Ooh, this is spicy. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. And this section in Luke is the most complex and difficult section of the whole passage. Basically, the experts in the law said that they were honoring the Old Testament prophets as heroes of the faith by building them tombs. And so if you have the Pharisees as unmarked graves, Jesus's complaint to the experts in the law, his critique to them is that they're building elaborate tombs. What the Pharisees are doing is kind of unhidden. It's a hidden thing. What the experts in the law are doing, it's so everybody can see. And he's got problems with it. Because he's saying that what they're completing, by building all of these elaborate tombs, they're completing the work of their ancestors that sent the prophets to the tomb. It is a harsh and very complex critique. And if you want to know more, find me after the service and we can talk about it. But it's a big critique that Jesus has for the experts in the law. The sixth woe is you are keeping others from God. Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. This is the final woe and it's the most terrible crime the experts in the law have committed. If the knowledge of God is pictured as the key, as a great city, then what the experts in the law they've done is they've taken away the key to the city from the people. 
Their strict approach to following rules has taken away the joy of understanding God better. And even for their supposed knowledge, all the knowledge that they have, Jesus tells them that they haven't entered heaven. And what's worse is they are blocking other people from entering. And you know what happens next? Everyone at the party repents, confesses, commits to following Jesus. Everyone lives happily ever after. Wouldn't that be great? But no, that's not what happens. That's not how the journey goes. Luke eleven fifty three through 54, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. How wild to think that the people who thought that they were the closest to God totally missed God standing right in front of them. Your biography is your greatest theology. And the biggest critique Jesus has for these religious elites is that they didn't have their eyes fixed on the right kind of light. They looked wholly on the outside, but were not tending to the health of their inner life. They had the wrong priorities, and that led to the wrong perspective for life. Listen, Jesus lived a perfect life so that you and I don't have to. We aren't accepted by God because of our adherence to the law. We are accepted by by God because Jesus was perfectly obedient. And, And it could be pretty easy today to hear all that Jesus has said and for us to think, well, I would never be like the Pharisees and religious experts. I want to do that. But that's a dismissive response. When Jesus speaks his mind like how he spoke his mind today, it's best to humble ourselves and listen so we can find out how Jesus might examine us. And the humble response for our lives today is this. It's, Lord, show me. Show me where I have put religious activity over our relationship together and over my love for other people. We constantly have to monitor our inner lives if we want to walk with Jesus throughout our lives. A healthy inner life will produce a vibrant outer life that attracts others to Jesus, just like the premiere lights for a blockbuster movie. And speaking of movies, here's something I learned recently. Austin Butler portrays Elvis Presley in the movie Elvis. And uh, the the film took two years to make. And when they were done filming, Austin Butler went back into his normal life. But he had to always be asking his family and friends whose voice he was using. He was so used to using the voice of Elvis, he didn't know if it was his normal voice or Elvis' voice. And in an interview, Austin said, you can lose touch with who you actually are. And I definitely had that when I finished Elvis, not knowing who I was. And that might be true for playing Elvis, but when you follow Jesus, you don't lose touch with who you actually are. When you follow Jesus, you become who you were created to be. 
And when we let Jesus tend to the health of our inner lives, we will shine bright for Jesus in our outer life. When Jesus gets into our hearts, he transforms us from the inside out, unleashing us to be light in the world for the good news of his saving love. So my friends, may we shine on in Jesus' name. Let's pray. God, uh, God, in scenes like this, may we be humble in hearing what you have to say. Lord, I, I, I truly believe everything, everything is meant for our good when it comes to you. Even the critiques. Jesus, I pray for us in this room that this week, today, we would examine our inner lives God, we would be serious about thinking through what religious activities are we wearing with a badge of honor that actually might be covering up the light that you want to shine. God, as we absorb these passages, may we fix our eyes on you. Light does a couple things. Light comforts us, but light also exposes us. And even in the exposing nature of your light, Jesus, may we find the comfort of your love. May we be blessed as we go this week. Thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your grace, and your love that you so generously pour out on us. In your awesome, awesome name, amen.